Hello and welcome to The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up this week. Energy, electricity is the bedrock or the foundation of the modern society in which we live. As a business opportunity, it doesn't get much bigger. Yes, we're talking about making energy efficiency sexy. And I meet a man who left his €100,000 a year CEO job to launch a startup that is trying to do just that. Stay tuned. Yeah, welcome back. This is episode 36 of the Better Business Show. Much appreciated your tuning in and coming back to us. Uh, and wow, yeah, week 36 of, of the show. Um, and also, the year just seems to be flying by, uh, approaching the end of September. How the hell did that happen? Uh, anyway, thanks for coming back to us, uh, you loyal listeners out there. Um, let me tell you a bit about what I'm up to right now. I realize that many of you tune into the show, and I suspect many of you know very little about what it is that I do. Yes, I'm the host of The Better Business Show, uh, but I'm also the founder and CEO of Narrative Matters. Uh, We're a content creation agency working with organizations looking to create positive and environmental change in the world. Uh, And we help them through storytelling, uh, through building narratives, creating content that really engages uh, stakeholders everywhere. And The Better Business Show is just one of the vehicles we use to do that sort of storytelling. So if you like what you hear on the show, um, don't be afraid to get in touch and see how Narrative Matters might help you with your stakeholder engagement, your communications, your content marketing, uh, your storytelling needs. Uh, You can check out what we're up to and who we're working with right now at narrativematters.co.uk. But yeah, it's been a uh, absolutely mad September so far. I think everybody came back from their break in August and went, oh shit, we better crack on and um, you know, it'll be December before we know it. Um, so yes, what's keeping me busy right now is the stories attached to this week's uh, UNGA, the UN General Assembly. Um, it's been almost a year since the Sustainable Development Goals were launched in January and there's, I guess, well, well plenty of interesting stories and examples of companies that are actually using the SDGs. To, to really sort of frame their strategy, to set their priorities. Um, and of course, you, you know, you have the more enlightened businesses like Unilever um, and other members of the, the, the Business and Sustainable Development Commission. If you haven't seen that, check that out. It's a really interesting group of companies. Um, it's a group of companies that, that recognize some of the challenges outlined by the SDGs and whether that's you know, ending poverty or uh, tackling climate change or, or boosting the health and well-being of people everywhere. Um, yes, those things pose a risk to business, but they're also a massive, uh, massive opportunity. Um, so if you're a business you know, wondering what the hell to, to focus on, uh, not just as part of your CSR work, but, but in terms of what you should be doing as a business, uh, what role you should be playing in the world, what you know, how you can maintain your your relevance, how you can maintain that license to operate, then uh, then the SDGs are actually quite a good place to start. Uh, it's basically a list of you know what's wrong with the world. Um, fix everything on the list by 2030, uh, and everything will be all right. And that's kind of the theory behind it. So certainly worth having a look at the SDGs. There'll be plenty of talk, no doubt, in the, the you know in this coming week about the SDGs and all that's going on at the the UNGA. Um, and, you know, what what I love is the fact that, you know, some of the big issues and challenges we raise and discuss on this show uh, will hopefully take centre stage in terms of media coverage uh, and outreach for at least a week anyway, um, as all the, the, the world's sort of business leaders and policymakers all head down to New York uh, for the UN meeting. 
uh, and hopefully the disruption caused by the bombs um, that were found and detonated in the city over the weekend will not have too much of an impact on proceedings there because uh, you know it's a really useful and prominent way to to raise uh, awareness and, and interest in these subjects on on a global stage which we very rarely get um, so we'll have a roundup of all that, that, that went on at Unger uh, in next week's show so stay stay tuned for that um, so yeah so this week we have our usual format for you we're going to be speaking to with a guy named uh, Simon Phelan uh, he left his 100,000 euro uh, job uh, as a CEO to launch a new startup designed to get everybody excited about saving energy uh, and he's a fascinating chap so stay tuned for that that's coming up shortly uh, but before we get into the heart of that story let's check in with Vicky Knowles as ever and get a snapshot of what's been happening in the world of better business Vix, welcome back hi Tom how are you doing I'm um, very well you you I'm very good. I'm very good, thank you. Good. We, we missed you last week. Well, welcome back. Oh, thank you. Yeah, back on Skype. Yeah, well, this is it. And um, yeah, we did miss you. We we didn't have any update last week on what's going on. So lots really? to catch up on. So we crack yeah. on and, and get a sense of, of what's happening out there. Definitely. Um, shall I start? I wanted to point everybody to a new uh, report that was released last week, uh, which looks at 13 of the biggest global food companies. So this is kind of fast food companies or retailers or, or food manufacturing companies. And it found that even the best of these companies in terms of you know their commitment to sustainability, even the best of the best are failing to protect tropical forests from being converted to, to, to cattle fields, basically. So there's a big, big focus on beef, which I know we've spoken about before. But it's a, it's a piece of work done by the Union of Concerned Scientists, which makes the point that the clearing of tropical forests contributes about 10% of uh, greenhouse gases and beef production is the largest contributor of that. So there's a scorecard that they've developed which evaluates the deforestation policies of these 13 companies which have a presence in the US but also source beef from South America for their products including I don't know pizzas, burgers, you know all that sort of stuff, sandwich meats, all that sort of thing. And it scored them on a variety of different criteria, whether you know whether it's whether they have a deforestation-free purchasing commitment, whether they have adequate transparency about how they're implementing those commitments, um, about whether they have a sufficient system in place to make sure that they can monitor instances of deforestation in their supply chain. And it says that you know while some companies have begun to take steps towards zero deforestation, uh, beef, uh, they say that none of these companies have gone far enough. And many of them have done little or nothing. Out of the 13 companies, four achieved zero points out of a possible 100. Mm-hmm. And six received less than 30 points. And even the three companies that scored highest, so that's Walmart, McDonald's and Mars, uh, have fallen well short of a strong rating which with scores of just 48, 52, 37 respectively. So, you know, these companies clearly not doing enough when it comes to beef fix. Yeah, it's it's a great opportunity really to put like a spotlight on the actual reality of these companies' practices because it might sound amazing to consumers, but it's hard to really know who's the real deal or not. You know, what are they saying? Is that really what's going on? Um, for example, when you hear that you know Burger King is a member of the round table, um, you know they they got zero points. Um, you might assume mm. that they, they do a bit better than that, but um, not to single them out, but it is an interesting example compared to you know their their um, rival McDonald's, who's 
on the top of the chain, even though you know they're saying that that's not really good enough either. Yeah, I know. There's a really interesting debate, I think, about the about the influence and the, the positive impact of of round tables and standards bodies. Because you're right. You know, I think Burger King's a member of two of these kind of round tables, and yet it has no policy in place to make sure that the beef it buys is not contributing to deforestation. And you think, well, you know, what's the point of these of these round tables? I mean, are you just paying lip service to being part of this kind of collective action over here? And yet you're taking little action yourself. So uh, it's, it's really interesting. I'm writing a piece this week about this very subject, Vic. So it's um, it is really interesting, actually. Oh, interesting. Okay. That's cool. Good. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so what else have you found this week? Okay, cool. So um, I've actually got two stories about sheep. Okay. So um, bear with me. Okay. Um, so the first one is, okay, the campaign for wool um, may not be the very top of fashion people's priorities, um, what with September being a busy month for them, but Prince Charles has a way of getting people's attentions with it. So the first ever wool conference took place in Dumfries House in Scotland, and he invited Olympic medalist Max Whitlock along, um, and he whipped out a, a gymnastic routine while wearing a wool suit. Uh, the designer of said suit, Paul Smith, then threw a glass of water over President of Condé Nast, uh, Nicholas Coleridge, uh, to of course demonstrate wool's natural water resistance. Um, so along with that, the campaign promotes the wealth of other advantages of wool, such as being naturally renewable, biodegradable and breathable, to name just a few. And then as well as talking up the consumer benefits, the campaign also encourages collaboration between wool growers, fashion designers, retailers, manufacturers, and in- interior designers as well. Um, so there were some other big names at the event. Um, Blur's bassist, Alex James, uh, he's made a film called Slowing Down Fast Fashion. So there was a viewing of that. Livia Firth uh, took to the stage to talk about the ethics of wool. And then the event was sponsored by m your favorite, Tom. So uh, <laughs> CEO Steve Rowe discussed their commitment to positive environmental practices. Um, there was a quote I really liked from Alan Savory, president and co-founder of the Savory Institute of Holistic Land Management. Um, so he said, get the knowledge of these issues to the public in any way that you can. I liken life to a game of cricket. We all have just one innings and I am nearing the end of mine, but many of you are just beginning yours. So play the innings of your life for team humanity. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I, I, I could be wrong, Vix, but I feel like there's a real movement here with 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 fashion and the ethics of fashion yeah. you're, you're close to this world than i am but it seems that you know following in the on the heels of, of what's happening in food over the last you know decade where you've got this growing market of people that you know seeking out the most sustainable food you know the way it's produced the way it's sourced but it seems like we're at the start of something in fashion i don't know what do you what do you think i, I like to think so yeah yeah and um Definitely, like, uh, you see, you've got, obviously, the, when you buy things new, you've got the sustainable brands and stuff. But also, you know, maybe, I don't know, 20 years ago, if you were, if you came to school wearing something your mum had made for you or you'd made yourself, it seems like, you know, um, embarrassing. But now I think if you, if you shop secondhand or you make your own clothes, it's like, wow, that's amazing. Like, it, it seems like a shift in, in attitude as well from that vantage point. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, like sustainable brands almost seems like you know, kind of posh as well. So it's it's kind of got that luxury. Like it's, it, you can just sort of translate it into luxury as well. Like if it like this this um, article I was actually kind of um, getting the information from was in Vogue. So like that just goes to show that actually you know um, it's of interest to, to them. So that that's actually. Exactly 
Oh, and I, yeah. I was I was watching the X Factor on Saturday night, as I so often do. Uh, obviously, you know the the biggest thing on TV in terms of the commercial reach, and I'm always intrigued to see what sorts of companies are taking you know those big paying sort of advert slots in the show. And it was brilliant. They had the new Marks and Spencer's advert, one of my faves, as you say, Vix. Did you have you seen it yet? I haven't. No. So it's a, it's their big kind of TV ad to to launch the new season, I guess. And um, but it very subtly weaves in some sustainability messaging, which is really cool. Uh, while at the same time getting everyone excited about the new season and, and the new products, uh, and you don't see that sort of thing very often, particularly on you know during a prime time TV slot, I guess. So it was all very very welcome. But to have a look at it if you if you get a chance. Yeah, I should. Yeah, I don't have a TV license, so I'm I'm completely out of touch with what's on TV. <laughs> <laughs> so you said you had two, you you said you had two stories about sheep. What was the other one? Yeah. So the other one, okay, um, sheep. Uh, maintaining the lawn are just one of the ultra sustainable features at Nike's super clean distribution center in Belgium. Um, So (laughs) other notables include running the whole joint on 100% renewable energy, receiving 95% of goods on boats, which helps avoid 14,000 truck journeys a year, and free bikes for employees who vow to cycle in at least half the time, and then it's an e-bike if they live more than 15 kilometers away. They've got six huge wind turbines um, like surrounding the place, creating enough power for 5,000 houses and enough solar panels to cover three soccer fields. And then you've got green roofs, green walls, uh, green walls, sorry, not walls. Wolves. <laughs> <laughs> that would be weird. Um, beehives and flowers to attract birds, insects and bees. So it sounds like a pretty, pretty cool thing. Um, it's an article on Fast Company. It's definitely worth checking out. Yeah, the sheep definitely wouldn't like the wolves there if they were there. That would be terrible. <laughs> that would be a whole different thing. <laughs> it would. I love the fact that the Fast Company have picked this up because I think telling these sorts of stories is really is tough, actually, because it's kind of anything about energy efficiency, warehousing, logistics, all that fairly boring stuff. I mean, to a certain extent, clean energy is quite tough to talk about as well. But because there's so much innovation going on within Nike right now, whether it's, you know, their trainers made out of old fishing nets or whatever it is. Mm. Um, but somebody's got to do this, this mundane stuff. And actually, you know, it's a really, really smart story. This, uh, obviously, you know, I've been around looking at manufacturing sites for years now. And obviously we had Heineken on the show a few months back, uh, doing something similar, but getting all these different facets to work together at these, at these industrial sites is really tough, but it's really, really smart. And I love the fact Fast Company are picking up on these stories now, and because, because they, you know, they need telling, they need explaining, they need people to get excited. All our future sort of engineers out there that that we, that we desperately need, uh, but really getting people excited about this stuff, I think it's great. Brilliant, yeah. brilliant story. Definitely. It's quite interesting because that that thing about the sheep, you know, that was kind of a small thing, you know, that they've got sheep instead of lawnmowers. Um, That was in the sub, that's the title of the thing. That's how they draw people in like, oh, this is, you know, how funny. This is almost like shareable, I guess. And then you've got 100% renewable energy and all that, all the kind of big stuff. (laughs) Exactly. It draws people in and before people know it, they've learned all about all these kind of fairly mundane stuff within a, within, a, <laughs> you know, within a manufacturing plant. But that's yeah. it. That's exactly how you need to tell these stories. It's, it's very commendable, yeah. Yeah, um, definitely. So, so to, to finish off today, I mean, it's a really interesting piece on management today that I want to uh, talk about, about, um, about soaring executive pay, which we obviously we're all quite familiar with. We've talked about it before 
on the show and, and it's it's in the news basically but this piece is, is looking at how that pay of CEOs actually can impact on the reputation of a company with the general public so there's some new research conducted by uh, the Reputation Institute uh, which shows that 63% of people that work in kind of global affairs teams or marketing teams describe themselves as very involved in managing their CEO's reputation. So there's clearly a real focus on that. Um, but among external stakeholders, the success and visibility of CEOs and other senior corporate leaders is important and leadership influences overall perceptions of reputation by 12.5% of the general public. Uh, but it's a really interesting point. The, the whole piece kind of explores this notion of reputation being a, a fairly holistic concept and that, you know, high quality products, openness, fairness, transparency, all those things all have an, you know, a much higher impact on the overall reputation uh, of a company than leadership alone. Um, but you do, you know, you do, people look at CEOs, they look at leaders of businesses with a, with a certain eye. Um, and it also looks at companies like Virgin and, and Dyson, where you've got these kind of entrepreneurial driven kind of CEOs like, like Branson and, and Dyson. Obviously, you know, highly paid individuals, but they've also got really strong reputations. And people kind of, they don't mind these guys earning a fair whack if, if the brand is right and they're positioning themselves right. And yet other companies, when you've got executives that are earning an absolute fortune, um, I don't know that people there's a, there's a negative light shone on them and people don't have that same uh, perception of them as being these great great figures. Uh, but it's an interesting interesting debate, really. I mean, what do you think, Vix? I mean, do you care about how much the boss of your favourite brands, you know, get gets paid? That's, yeah, that's interesting. I think I'd agree with the general um, opinion of the article in, in that you know that yeah, Virgin, you know, Richard Branson's got his own island or whatever. That doesn't bother me because he, he, he's got this whole, yeah, entrepreneurial story. It's all this storytelling around, you know, how he actually became the CEO. And he always talks about, you know, um, I'm sure, pretty sure there's like an article that like um, uh, lessons for me at 25 or something. Um, but yeah, like as soon as you hear some company that you don't really like, you know, getting even more bad press, you do look to the CEO who's making loads of money and think, you know, what... They're a completely relevant person to turn to in those times, I think, and then yeah. they they can answer for it in a way. That's it, and often it comes back to you know whether they're worth it. Of course, you yeah. know, there's many things that play into that notion of worthiness. Um, you know, I find myself often defending the the, the the pay packets of Premier League footballers, which you know are absolutely extortionate. But yeah. you know, in the context of the market, they're worth it. You know, because. You know, TV companies are paying billions of pounds for the rights to show matches. You've got, you know, people willing to pay a lot of money for a ticket to get into a game. And all of that money goes somewhere. And, you, you know, you think, well, it, it rightly should end up in the pockets of those that bring the most entertainment. In a similar yeah. sense, you know, if a CEO is bringing innovation, is, you know, stimulating amazing products and services, is, you know, contributing to kind of tackling some of the, the big sort of sustainability issues, you think, well, yeah, they, they, should, they should deserve the, the, the big bucks. So yeah. it's an interesting one, but all, all the all the links to that to our reference points will be in the show notes. Uh, there's plenty going on. There's some really good examples there, Vic. So thanks for sharing, and uh, and we'll see you again next Monday. Yes, see you then. Thanks for that, Vix. Yeah, we'll have more from Vix next week, hopefully. Um, now let's get into the heart of our story this week. Um, now, what makes somebody give up? 
uh, a salary of 100,000 euros and a position of CEO to launch a startup at the age of 26. Because that's what our guest this week has done. His company is, uh, is Hometree, a UK-based technology business focused on alleviating the hassle too often associated with buying boilers and other energy-saving home improvement uh, bits and bobs um, for good, basically. The ambition is to be the go-to place for homeowners looking to install or finance a range of products which help reduce their reliance on the grid, help them live more comfortably, cheaper, in a more sustainable way. At just 20, Simon was given an incredible opportunity when he was selected by the New Entrepreneurs Foundation as one of the top young potential entrepreneurs in the UK in its inaugural programme. Now, the programme placed him with John Moulton, uh, who many of you might be familiar with. He's the famous private equity investor. And Simon joined on a one-year contract, which ultimately turned into a permanent role. By the age of 23, he'd been sent home to his hometown of Dublin in Ireland to set up a 100 million euro joint venture fund with the Irish government. And by 25, Simon had been made CEO of one of John's major investments. However, inspired by the likes of Elon Musk, Simon felt increasingly compelled to work on what he believes is his generation's greatest problem, climate change. Aware of Elon Musk's mission to accelerate the advent of sustainable transportation with his company Tesla, Simon wanted to do something similar. But as an environmental engineer by training, he was keen to concern himself with the fact that the largest greenhouse gas contributor by far electricity generation in residential buildings was not seeing the same type of innovation. Home tree is his response. Here's our conversation. Simon, thank you so much for being on the Better Business Show. Really excited to hear about you and your business and your story. Um, why don't we start in the in the here and now? Let's let's find out about what it is you're up to right now with with Home Tree. Uh, why don't you give us the elevator pitch? What's Home Tree? What are you trying to do with it? Okay, well, thank you, Tom. Thanks for having us on. Um, Hometree is a marketplace where we make home energy upgrades really easy for consumers across the UK. So that's everything from boiler installs to new windows, solar PV, and more niche technologies like storage batteries, etc. We looked at this industry and felt that the key channel through which these new renewable sustainable technologies could be delivered into the home was broken. And that was the home improvement industry, the white man in the van. It really felt as if the only options consumers had was British Gas, where yes, there's a big trusted brand, but there's a significant premium to go with that big player. Or the white man in the van, which there are many trustworthy players in the market. It's very difficult because these are typically once-off transactions to get that inherent trust when you're working with a new provider and spending an awful lot of money. So it felt as if there was a gap in the market for a player who could come in, bring all the benefits through technology that one would expect from a large company, from a brand that's financing online payments, contracts with a with us and um, the warranties etc top tier product and um, but also then leverage local installers much lower price points than a british gas to offer a much more um, cost effective solutions for homeowners looking into this okay so you don't employ anyone do you, you use a kind of associate model do you 
Yeah, we're, we're a marketplace. And so we have a network of installers who are um, essentially subcontractors underneath our brand. Okay. Uh, we, we clearly do have um, office employees in, in our head office in technology and finance and marketing. But really, we've looked at, I guess, what one would call the platform economy, which really started with the Ubers and the Halos, etc. Yeah. And seen that very fragmented industries that have fragmented supply bases um, are ripe for innovation. Um, because they haven't necessarily offered consumers that transparent solution before. And if you can take technology and put that almost um, kind of integrated layer between the consumer and the, these trade partners, um, it offers value to both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so as you say, trust is one thing. Another thing is just it's so complicated, isn't it? Trying to, trying to make your home more energy efficient um it's i mean was that another reason to, to launch this business just the, the yeah, complexity I mean, of it you know absolutely tom i think if you think about this from a consumer's perspective um what we're finding today is that consumers at the moment are interacting with home tree um mostly on a on a single product basis so right. i need a new boiler um you know I've seen these guys ads on Facebook or or I hit upon them in, in some PR story that we did. And I hear it's a kind of more hassle-free way because when one's uh, boiler or windows break, you know it's going to be a painful experience. But as you said, for the consumers, and we have encountered a few in our in our early days so far, who genuinely energy efficiency is their, is their front and center mind or the decision for going through this process, you know, it's a very broken process. First yeah. and foremost, you need to figure out what your options are for reducing your bills. Everything from heating, solar, new LED lights. Then you need to say, okay, well, within all those products and the products I've selected within my budget, what brands do I go at? I've never heard of any of these brands, but I'll pick yeah. whichever one, you know. Then you need to find a great installer, get a number of quotes, need to see if you can get finance or if there's any kind of funding available from the government and then see if there what the regulatory aspect is you know do you need to speak to your mortgage advisor because um, you're putting solar on your roof and so the whole process just ends up leaving the consumer more um you know confused than when they started at, uh, you know with this great thought and so what home tree has done is is we have streamlined and brought efficiency to the whole process. Um, we've brought everything in under the one banner, so we've integrated finance through an API, so that happens through us. You never have to go speak to your bank. Payments right. happen with us. We do the vetting of installers, so this is not rated people where we introduce you to installers and let you go. We're end-to-end -end with the consumer. The contract sits with us. We spend hours vetting the highest quality installers in the market doesn't necessarily mean they're the highest price. It just means they're there's they're got the right insurance in place. They've got the right um, warranties and the right standard of work, and mm. um, so that we can really offer a consumer that that hassle-free way to to get these changes made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you mentioned it just just earlier about kind of uh, policy and regulation, uh, which has been frankly fairly sketchy, particularly in the UK. Um, and I mean, what's it like for a company like yours trying to navigate that complexity and, and, and you know, perhaps you know, the danger of being at the mercy of, of that type of uh, regulation that supports uh, companies like yours, I guess? Yeah, I think this is something that took me a long time to get over. Um, when I was thinking about starting this business, I'm very passionate about sustainability. And initially, it was some of the US solar businesses like Solar City that had inspired me to get involved in this space. And 
what I ultimately concluded was starting a residential solar business in the UK or Europe at this moment in time and trying to do that as a venture-backed business, so a high-growth business that's going to raise a significant number of rounds of capital, um, it just wasn't feasible because there was such a stroke of pen risk. Overnight, as we saw in January, the feed-in tariffs could be completely cut and that could end your business um, for two to three years. So what we've actually done is we've stood back and said, well, what's really important here? Is it the one technology that you bet on, i.e. we are a solar company, or is it the fact that the home is moving to almost becoming this micro power plant over the next five to 10 years, and it's not one silver bullet of a technology. But if you think about what is the channel through which all these technologies will be deployed, it's almost exactly the same. It's your plumbers, electricians, your home improvement industry. So what we've started at and what we were able to get our venture investors comfortable with is we're going to build this platform around well-established, non-subsidy-related categories like boilers, windows, and insulation. Mm. And then when the new technologies become economic on their own own two feet, or if the subsidies are still in play, such as solar, et cetera, but as storage becomes more applicable, we then have the capacity to give our suppliers buying discounts, capacity to give them training in these new technologies, but we can use the same channel to push those products through to consumers. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the products actually, because I guess that's another thing that's in your favour. And in that, lots of these technologies are maturing now, aren't they? Um, I, I guess you know, five six years ago, you might not have been able to set this business up, right? Yeah, I think if you know, the motivation for setting up this business was um, really the realization that where we are in the energy industry today is almost you know, exactly akin to where we were in telephony 25, 30 years ago, as we moved from this centralized landline-based model to an increasingly distributed mobile model. That has really started to take off where the economics of the various technologies, solar and storage, of course, being predominant, um, are now looking like clearly they'll, they'll come online in different geographies at different times but within the next five to ten years they become standalone more cost effective than traditional electricity and when that happens as you say it completely changes the incumbent utility model um, which has been in play for over a hundred years and so really part of the reason that I set this business up and want to now concentrate very heavily on building this infrastructure this channel which is the platform the installers is because I absolutely believe that it's a safe bet to assume that these technologies will be viable on a standalone basis within the coming five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let, let me let me go back in time and, and talk about where you know where all this started really, and and, and how your career has has progressed. Uh, you say you're, you're passionate about sustainability. This was a, a company that was in your mind. I mean, where where did all that sort of start? Do you think? Um, it's it's. It definitely has been in, in my mind for a long time. Um, my background is civil and environmental engineering. So I had a definite interest in the sustainability team uh, through my education. But I was given a great opportunity once I'd left university in Ireland uh, when I moved to London to work for a, a fairly well-known investor called John Moulton in a, in a private equity vehicle that he'd set up. And that was a large London Stock Exchange listed fund that invested across Europe in private but distressed corporates. And so it wasn't uh, sector specific, but it 
invested in troubled businesses and looked to turn them around. Okay. So I had um, five very interesting years investing there, which ultimately saw me investing in London, moving back to Ireland, um, setting up a hundred million fund in partnership with the government there. But also then I joined one of the companies that I'd helped to buy a CEO. And I guess what I recognized was that um, private equity is a, is a wonderful space. It can be very lucrative and it's a very interesting career. But someone like John Moulton had really rode the growth rate and the growth wave of that industry over 20, 30 years. And it's now a very mature and very competitive market. And so I felt that whilst, yes, one could do well in their career in that space, that actually what you find looking at someone like John Moulton, that in many cases, being in the right sector, the right growth sector at the right time plays an even more important role in one's success. And so I definitely felt that that played a role in me thinking outside of private equity and came to that conclusion that um, I had interest in sustainability. It was a definite growth trend. And I felt that the timing was just right, having spent a couple of months looking into solar companies back in 2013, 2014 for one of our own investments we'd made um, right, right. That, that actually I was going to explore it in, in a lot more detail. Right, right. So for our listeners that, that, that don't know John Moulton, explain who he is and, and what, what he does in a bit more detail. Yeah, John is one of Britain and Europe's um, leading private equity and, and venture capital investors. Um, he was very much at the forefront of that asset class um, as it came to prominence in Europe from the 70s onwards. And he was involved in, in really kind of the, the initial phase and in the setting up of some of Europe's largest funds, such as CBC, uh, Premira, Apex Ventures, and, right. and then Alchemy, which is his previous vehicle before Better Capital. But John's an entrepreneur. Um, he's you know, a very active personal investor. He's a risk taker. Um, he's made money. He's lost money. And he has a, a history of you know, finding young ladies and, and, and men who are ambitious and, and backing them. And thankfully, I got an opportunity to work alongside him, and he's continued to support me since. Yeah, and you were super young at the time, weren't you? Were CEO of what twenty five was it? Yeah, yeah. So I was given how was an opportunity. that? I mean, wow, yeah, yeah. It was it was intense. Um, it, it was a tough business. It was a it was a turnaround case. Um, yeah. We we had a. we had bought the UK parent, and there was an Irish subsidiary. And it had been loss making for a number of years. It had done a terrible property deal in Ireland um, before the, 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 the banking crisis. And they had an upward only rental review. So the whole rents need to be reset. They'd taken much more space than they needed. And so there was a resizing of that business required. Um, you know, I think I was at a stage in my career where I'd done quite a bit of investing, but felt that I had a gap in my CV operationally. And I guess timing was just very right that there was a, a need within the company um, for someone to go in and, and to do a year's work. And then I had capacity in my own career and, and interest before, I guess, taking the step out by myself to really learn what it's like to run a business um, under the mentorship of someone like John. Yeah, yeah. And before we came on air, uh, Simon, we were talking about, you know, the premise of, of this show. And, you know, this is about proving that sustainable business models work. And, and this is a space that, that is um, that is um, alive and well right here, right now. And, uh, and obviously, you've had 
lots of time working for John and and doing what you were doing before assessing the landscape and yet you know you chose to go into uh, creating your own sustainable business uh, which I guess sort of speaks volumes I mean did you did you see it ever as a sort of gamble or did you think actually yeah this is this is the right time right now it's it's a, it's a great question because you know technology has now hit such a point that industry after industry has been disrupted and we look in london we're in the epicenter certainly in europe and and if not globally of of financial services and clearly technology is starting to have a real impact in that space but i guess for me there was a lot of um of consideration and thought gone into a what am i truly passionate about and i i truly am passionate about sustainability i believe that my generation's greatest crisis will, will be climate change and that we need to take commercial solutions to solving that. But also, I, I genuinely believe that energy, electricity is the bedrock or the foundation of the modern society in which we live. Vehicles are going electric, electric um, and that as a business opportunity, it doesn't get much bigger. And mm. so, you know, making a bet in your mid-20s to say that there's maybe... I have 40, 50, hopefully more years of a career ahead of me. What are the really big growth areas? Um, knowing that I want to be based in Europe. Um, well, I think that this is a fascinating space and important yeah. at the same time. Yeah, I'm interested in, in also your where your inspirations come from. I know that you mentioned Solar City before. Also Tesla, I guess. Elon Musk, uh, a guy that inspires you. Uh, I mean, obviously, he's on a, he's on a very different mission with, with you know, the advent of sustainable transportation. I was reading a piece in the Times the other day about his kind of battle with uh, the guy that founded Amazon and the, the pair of them are trying to get their own sort of space missions off the ground. Um, but, you know, obviously I've just sort of reflected on that and thinking, well, you know, you've launched into a very different market, which is, as you say, it's about electricity, it's about energy, biggest contributor to climate change there is. Um, but it, it doesn't have the same sort of appeal, does it? There's, you know, it's just not sexy, is it? Talking about energy, and it desperately needs to be. But I wonder how how you can change that. Well, I think if if you you know Elon Musk is is the Henry Ford of our day, and so whatever he touches, you know, um, it, it is sexy, it's newsworthy, and yeah. and he he is you know he's I, I believe possibly the greatest entrepreneur of all time. Um, but I think if you look at it from a practical perspective, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, Tesla state their mission has been accelerating the advent of sustainable transportation. And yes, transportation plays a big role in greenhouse gas emissions. But actually, as you point out, the largest contributor by far is electricity generation in residential buildings. Yeah. So if we're really going to make an impact in, in solving uh, the climate crisis. I truly believe that we have to tackle this problem because it's much larger. But the question of how does one go about making energy sexy? Well, I think there's a couple of trends here that actually um, are in our favor. Number one, no longer can the energy industry be the dumb um, pipes and, and pylon industry that it has been in the past. Increasingly, it's going to have to go the same way that telcos do, whereas no longer will a utility just know its consumer as, you know, consumer who lives in that home. We, we deliver gas to his gas meter. They're going to know that consumer's name. They're going to have to know his energy preferences. 
IoT is going to, the Internet of Things is going to play an increasingly large role in empowering consumers to be able to make their own choices for how comfortable their home is, how sustainable it might be, what type of uh, generation capacity they have and what various products they have. So I think that as a nature of that technology, technological input coming into this industry, it will start to um, change. But I also think at the same time, one thing the technology industry has done very well is it has learned how to build these new 21st century brands. And I think for a brand like us, Tesla's absolutely um, you know, front and center in inspiration of how one goes about building uh, you know, your brand in a consumer mindset. Um, you know, Virgin clearly has been a great brand in the UK over the last 30 years. They're consistently talking about sustainability, climate change. They made an announcement today about they've just found a new lower carbon way to fuel the planes with Virgin, with Virgin um, Airlines. And so I think this whole space, sustainability, electricity, just as a matter of the times we live in, will become more topical and more of a thing that consumers are aware of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so tell us, tell us about the team that you that you've you've built for Home Tree. I know you got the 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 previous head of product development, didn't you, at British Gas Hive? Uh, who else is working with you? What sort of team have you got together? Yeah, so I guess the background is I moved back to London from Dublin in um, the early part of this year, Q1 this year. I went to John Moulton um, Frontline Ventures. They're a big Irish venture capital firm, and around. Eight, eight or nine angels, uh, high net worths, um, including guy like Oliver Paul, who was the former vice chairman of UBS, and and said, told the guys the pitch, told them the plan. This is what I wanted it to do, and I raised a couple of hundred thousand of debt capital then um, from some friendly investors. So my my key um, focus at that time, as you say, was how can we put in place the right um, the right team. So the, the fundamental hire for me was I'm not a technologist, even though I'm an engineer. So right. as you rightly point out, I took in the former head of product from Hive um, simply because having met a lot of guys, I recognized I wanted someone who's a product guy. And that is, you know, he, he can speak technology, but he can also prioritize a speaking consumer. Yeah. He doesn't just get lost in the code. He really goes out, meets with consumers and understands what they want and what is important to them. And, you know, having met a lot, Andrea was by far and away the most consumer, customer-focused product guy I'd met. And we just clicked. And he was deeply passionate about climate change. He has two young sons. And he felt that it was important for him to be working on this. And the creativity of a startup would be would be the way to express himself. Yeah. Um, we then built a development team under him. So most of the team capital that we deployed went into building a development team over him over the last five months. Um, and we've also then brought in an operational team. So we're based in London with those functions, but the operational team is actually based in Warrington in Manchester. Yeah, and okay. so we have a full team there with a call center and we do all our installer onboarding, training, um, day-to-day management of our install base from that, from that space up in Manchester. And then whilst we haven't formalized a board yet, we've taken in two former British gas managing directors, guys who are involved in the Green Deal, one of John Moulton's guys as a semi-formal board that meets once a month um, and helps us plan out not only our product roadmap, but our fundraising and our hiring roadmap at the same time. Right, right. I, I can tell in your voice, uh, Simon, that, you, that you're enjoying this. You're, you're loving it out there. I mean, what's, what's, the, what's been the hardest bit about setting up this business so far? 
Listen, I think every day things go wrong, and and um, the you know this is this is ultimately though uh, where I want to be, what I want to be doing. So um, the hardest piece for me was 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 the start. I mean, Andrea was on board, and it's wonderful. Um, you know, one thinks that that they can go into a venture and and shoulder the burden themselves, but having just that extra person on board has really freed my mind up to concentrate on other areas but i find you know at the moment you you just are so stretched we made a a strategic decision to put most of our focus and team into the development of the product and and that's absolutely the right call but it means me at the moment being the only operational or kind of commercial guy um you know you end up doing fundraising hiring everything else um but listen i think it's it's great Two months ago, when we got up into our beta um, trial period, and the first customer comes through, you know, we all went out that night. We had beers, um, we've celebrated. Um, this week, we've launched all our online campaigns. That's been really good for us. We, we we started seeing good customer flow come through this week, and once again, you know, you celebrate those moments. So whilst in the day-to-day slog, it can feel sometimes as if, um, you know, more things are going wrong than right. And um, when you when you see those little positive steps and or an investor saying that he's really interested, which is starting to happen now for us, um, you know, it makes it all worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and for, for our listeners out there, whether they're working within big businesses, whether they're thinking about their own startup or maybe they're you know working within a startup right now. I mean, what, what are the sort of key piece of piece of advice you might be able to give to someone uh, working in this space? Well, we're super early, and so I, I don't hold us out as an example yet to to give stellar advice. You know, we're crafting our own path, and, and hopefully it will work for us. Um, but one thing I would say for sure has been a huge benefit for me is, you know, um, even if it's subconscious and not in the in the thought of setting up your business one day, your network is so important. I mean, I moved back to London, and within virtually three less than a month. I'd raised a couple hundred thousand of debt simply by going to John. He he closed the deal that day. A friend of mine from a big venture capital firm just essentially said, you know, doesn't matter what you're doing. We want to back you. Um, and then, you know, every one of them has just opened up the Rolodex and been incredibly generous, putting you in contact with um potential hires, you know, for example, there the other day, we're looking when we raise our seed, we'll be taking in a CTO. We went and met all the CTOs within portfolio companies of our ventures firm. They, they set all that up. John Moulton um, had some big P investor in sustainability from New York contact him the other day, put some straight in contact with me. So we've got this incredible network around us that even though on a day-to-day basis, there's only two co-founders sitting in the office, a couple of developers, you really feel as if you're not alone. And and I think that's really helpful. Yeah, good to have friends around you. Well, listen, Simon, it's been fascinating to uh, spend some time with you. And um, thanks for taking us on your on your journey, a real bold move actually to launch this this business, and uh, there's, as you rightly say, there's an absolute need to innovate in in this space and to to make you know homeowners everywhere give actually you know give a damn about energy and uh, and I guess we we urge our listeners to go out and check out Home Tree, and we look forward to seeing what comes next from you guys as the as the business continues to evolve, no doubt. But uh, thanks very much, Simon. Thank you, Tom. So 
Simon Phelan there, CEO and founder of HomeTree. And as I said at the end of that uh, recording there, it's a, bro, you know, it's a very bold, very brave move to enter into such a fierce market. But clearly, you know, Simon's used his experience. He's assessed the landscape um, and he thinks this is a good bet and we wish him all the best with it. All the details on Simon and his business can be found in today's accompanying show notes. So head over to betterbusiness.show for those. Now, as I said on last week's show, uh, we're very keen to speak with any organization out there that fancies becoming a part of the Better Business Show and lending us some commercial weight, please, to help us sustain the show as we head into the second half of the year. Uh, we've been going now since the 1st of February, putting out episodes every Monday. Uh, obviously, this is now 35 weeks in, and we've been doing that all without commercial support, and we want to change that. We need to change that so that we can continue to sustain uh, the model and keep bringing you these stories every week um, so you know if you're really really interested in becoming a commercial partner for the show we'd love to hear from you and you can use the the narrative of the better business show to to tell your story and to truly engage our awesome audience out there so if you want to find out more and find out exactly what i mean uh, then give me a call uh, or email me tom idol at narrativematters.co.uk uh, we'd love to have you join us now, before we go, uh, just a quick one. I urge you all to sign up to the Better Business Show newsletter. Just go to betterbusiness.show and you'll find a big box there at the top of the page. Just give us your email address and you'll start getting our email, which is comes out every Friday. Um, that'll have all the links to the, the latest episodes uh, and any other news that we might have for you. We often uh, give a kind of a teaser of what's coming in the weeks ahead on, in that newsletter. So have a look at that. Um, but that's it for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back again next Monday. So until then, goodbye.